All right, this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 22. Um, last week, uh, for those of you who didn't, uh, weren't with us or, or didn't watch online or anything like that, we, we saw Jesus being questioned by the religious elite, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even a lawyer, um, come and, and question him. They're trying to trap him into saying something. Um, that they could nail him down on, and, and it just doesn't work. It keeps not working. And so they decide at the end, it says that, that no one from that point on dared ask him any questions. They're just like, we're over with the questions. It's not working. Let's, let's just give it up. They've, they've given up on the questions. And, and so now Jesus is ready to go on the offensive. And this week and next week, we're going to see him um, attacking the Pharisees, kind of critiquing them, um, giving them some uh, so breaking down kind of what their, their false righteousness and everything. Um, and, and, but, but before we get into that, I want us to consider how we think about the Pharisees. Uh, because I think that most of the time um, when we read passages about Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, um, we put ourselves in the position of like, um, you know when there's a, a movie and there's like two characters that are fighting or something like that, and then there's the guys behind him? The two, like, the best friends, the kind of buddies behind him going, yeah, get him. We're like, we put ourselves, like, behind Jesus like that. We're like, yeah, get him, Jesus. Oh, you tell him, Jesus. Yeah. Where we're like, yeah, Jesus. Where we just, where we should be. We're, we're fans of Jesus. <laughs> right? That's where we, we, we're, like, we're on board. We're, we're on the team. But I think that that is unhelpful when we're reading these passages. Because... Scripture is meant to change us, and that's never going to change us if we think, like, I'm glad Jesus is getting them, right? If we only put ourselves in that position, that doesn't help change our hearts at all. It doesn't change who we are. It doesn't have anything to do with us. We ought to at least consider that sometimes in these passages, we are the Pharisees. Sometimes we're in the position of being in the wrong, and we need to actually listen to Jesus' critique and, and say, maybe this applies to me. Maybe this applied to me in the past. Maybe this applies to me now. Or maybe this will apply to me in the future and I should be careful to avoid getting in that position. That's one of the ways that we can interact with this. We go, well, it doesn't really apply where I'm, where I'm at. I, I'm not really sensing any of that in my heart right now. We can take it as a warning of saying, hey, watch out for this. Watch out for heading in this direction with your religiosity, with your religious practice. Because many of the Pharisees were well-intentioned. That's something that we sometimes forget, that many of them were just trying their best to live a life devoted to God. They didn't consider themselves the bad guys. Realize that's something that's true everywhere, that anyone who, whenever there's bad guys, those guys don't think of themselves as, as the bad guys most of the time. Sometimes there's some extreme rebels who go like, yeah, I'm the, I'm the bad guy, I'm the rebel, I'm the criminal, and they're like proud of that fact. But most people that are in that position don't think that they're, the bad, they're in the wrong. Most people in that position think that they're doing the right thing. And that's really where the Pharisees were. So as we read, let's consider whether this could apply to us at any point and, it, and at least take it as a warning, if nothing else. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they long for the place of honor at seats and the best seat in the synagogue, and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your, on, your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus says that the Pharisees sat on Moses' seat. And this was true in that they taught the law of Moses. They were, they were teaching and, and preaching the scriptures, which at this time was mostly the law of Moses along with the prophets. But they really focused on, on the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It was their responsibility to teach the people the word of God. And at this time, it was an even greater responsibility than it is today because there were, first of all, few copies of the scripture available. The printing press had not been invented. Every copy had to be copied by hand. That took a lot of time. So there just weren't a lot of copies of these scriptures. And on top of that, even if you could read, if you even if you could access one, it's very unlikely that you could read it. Many people were illiterate at this time, so the Pharisees had a huge responsibility. Anybody teaching the scriptures had a huge responsibility because people couldn't read it for themselves. That's been true for most of history, that the people had to have someone read them the scriptures, and that's how people access it. Going to the synagogue was the only way that most people had to hear the scriptures. And Jesus didn't actually have much criticism for their actual preaching, right? He said they preach, but they do not practice. They took the scriptures seriously. They, they read them correctly. They even interpreted them correctly for the most part, but they didn't live according to them. They didn't highlight the right things. The people could listen to their preaching and get good out of it, but they shouldn't follow the example that the Pharisees were setting. And this is, frankly, good news for us. Because it's saying that we can listen to, to preaching from someone who's not qualified. Not, it's not good news for you. It's fine for you. You're fine. No, just kidding. No, but for, it's true. For anybody, for anybody, it's good news because it, it means that our growth isn't dependent on the person bringing the word to us. Isn't dependent on the person teaching the word to us. He tells them, listen to what they preach, but don't follow their example. Listen to them because they're preaching the word of God and you can hear the word of God from them. And that's good news because we got a lot of, there are a lot of preachers out there today who are, are not qualified and who are going to mess up. And, and frankly, I'm going to mess up. I'm not going to do it perfectly. I'm not going to follow my own preaching perfectly as much as I want to be a person of integrity and, and practice what I preach. I'm not always going to do it. And so that's good news for you that you don't have to be limited by my righteousness. That's something that, that I, I had a professor teach us when I was in seminary. He said, that the, the spiritual maturity of any congregation is limited by the spiritual maturity of their pastor. And, and I, I think we're proof that that's not the case. So that's, that's good news. But, but that's, just not, that's just not scriptural. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's certainly not what Jesus teaches in this passage. In this passage, he says, listen to the scriptures, even hear it from someone who's not who's not living it correctly, but you can still grow. You can still grow because we are meant to be the body of Christ. 
The problem that he did have with the Pharisees pre- preaching is that they, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's backs. They were uh, very into a works righteousness. They found their, their righteousness in deeds, in what you did for God. That if you practiced correctly, if you did the right things, if you gave enough, if, uh, enough sacrifices in their case, but if you, if you gave enough and if you did enough good, then you, and if you were pious enough, then, then you could earn your, your righteousness. And they would make these, this, this burden very large. The things that people had to do were too much for them in order to reach God. And he says that they themselves weren't willing to do what they commanded the people to do. Their deeds didn't line up with their teaching. We must be careful not to do this ourselves. And, and, and it's certainly something that I have to be careful. This is certainly a warning more for people in my position. But it's true for all of us. And because all of us have people that are, that are following us. And it's certainly true for anybody who's a parent. That, that as you interact with your children, how are you teaching them about righteousness and where it comes from and where the motivation for these things should come from? Because the gospel is freedom. The good news of Jesus is, is freedom, that because Jesus has done everything, you don't have to do anything. But that level of freedom scares us. That level of freedom scares us. So most of the time when we preach the gospel, we tell people, you're free. You don't have to do anything. Jesus has done everything. He's done it for you. So your, your sins are washed clean and you are set free from Satan's sin and death. You are free. We t- tell them that and then we say, but you should probably do this and this and this and this and you probably shouldn't do these things just to be, just to be safe. We kind of teach a gospel of, of freedom right alongside a gospel of, of works righteousness, that, that people have to do these things. Well, you, you can't be doing these things. These, this is, this is uh, you know, really, you shouldn't do that or, or you, don't, you don't get this. That's free. That's not really free, right? That's just charging them after the fact. That's charging them after the fact. Because the, the way the gospel is intended to work, the way that, that our righteousness is intended to work is that we are truly set free, truly all burdens are removed. And then out of that freedom, we want to live for Christ. We want to live for Christ. If you ever are doing it out of obligation, you're not in the gospel. If it's ever obligation of, well, I have to do this. Well, I have to do this. That's not the gospel. The gospel is true freedom. Anything that comes out of it should be motivated only by the love of Christ that you have experienced, that in response to that love, you want to please him. You want to live for him. You want to live life his way, even a recognition that his way is better. That's what it's meant to come out of, but it has to be true freedom. Otherwise, we're just tying up heavy burdens and laying them on people. Jesus says, in, in, in contrast, that the, the Pharisees, they do all their righteous deeds to be seen by others. They enjoyed the attention their religiosity brought them, and, and it made them feel good about themselves that other people were impressed by their, their religious fervor, by how religious they were. People were, wow, I can't believe you. You're so pious, and you, you pray, and you make the sacrifices, and you know the scriptures so well. They're... All that praise got to them, and that started to be what they wanted most of all. 
But I think we should consider how does this happen? How does religious practice become religious performance? Because it can often, I think, be pretty natural process, a pretty natural and unfortunate like, slope that you just slide down that, that just, it just goes that direction quite easily, even from a, a place of well-intention. So imagine there, there's one of the, and Jesus already talks about a lot of these things in the Sermon on the Mount when we covered that. One of the things he covers there, he said the Pharisees like to stand on the street corner and, and pray very in an exaggerated way, very loudly to be seen by others. That was one of the things they like to do. They stood on the street corner and prayed in order to be seen by others. But I'd like to consider, this is purely hypothetical. This is not, this story isn't written in the scripture anywhere. But I think it's, it's reasonable for us to assume that this is possible. Imagine the Pharisee that this happened to, that, that one day he's just walking down the road and maybe he sees someone in need, he sees a poor person, or he's just struck by the corruption he sees around him and he stops and he prays fervently uh, to God of these concerns that have been put on his heart. He's just trying, he's just earnestly just wants to connect with God over these things that he's seeing. He stops and he prays and he just starts to walk again. And someone comes up to him and says, wow, that was, that was so touching. That, that really touched me that, that you, just, you just stopped and prayed and you just like connected to God in that way. Like that really encourages me in my prayer life to see you do that. I just wanted to thank you for doing that because it just really touched me. The Pharisee gets, continues to go on with his day and thinks, wow, that, okay, so maybe I should, if it was encouraging to that person and encouraged their prayer life, maybe I should start doing all my prayers out in public. And so then he just starts doing it multiple times during the day. He'll just come out, stop, pray, and, and, and more and more people start coming up to him and say, that, that really... I mean, I can see it in your face that you're just connected to God and you care about him and, and it really touches me. And so I just want to thank you. That really encourages me to see you pray like that. And then he keeps doing it. And a couple of weeks go by and pretty soon all the people in that area, they're, they're kind of over it and, and, and he, he, no one's coming up to him anymore. And he thinks, maybe people can't tell. Maybe people can't tell that I'm praying. Maybe I need to pray a little louder. So first he starts prays a little louder, and then, and then people come up to him. It's working again. People are, are talking to him about it again and even asking him to pray for them. And then, again, that dies out. And then so then he thinks, well, maybe I need to really get into it. And so he starts really getting into arm motions and praying loudly and so people can, can see him. And, and then pretty soon he's not even really praying. He's just looking for that attention. Do you see how it starts from a place of earnest desire to connect with God, but it can slip into that performance? It can go down that, that road. <clears throat> it's very difficult to avoid that, but it's something we have to, unless we're conscious of it, unless it's something that we're thinking about, I need to be careful that I'm doing this for God and not for other people. We've also seen this, so for a more modern example of that, um, a, a, a tricky situation that, that I, found my, I found myself in in this is, um, is with our Mexico mission trips. So with our Mexico mission trips, and we, we used to go and we'd take some pictures and stuff and then we'd like show them here on Sunday morning just to let people know what, we, you know, what it was like and what we did and what we saw. 
Um, and then social media came along, and then we start posting those, the, the, those pictures on social media um, and, and getting more reaction from people uh, on social media, comments and likes, and people go, oh, you guys, that's awesome, good job, thanks for doing that. And then I started to notice some people were like really trying to get like certain shots and pictures of them to be able to like put up and show, and then they get all this attention from people of, oh, so proud of you, and, and good job, what are you doing? And it's, I don't know, I can't know in anyone's heart where that slipped over the line to like, are you doing this genuinely out of a love for Jesus, or are you doing this for the attention that it brings you? But it's a question to consider, and it's something we started to talk about in our, in our pre-trip meetings of just, where does that, where is that line between are we doing this just to be seen, and, 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 and how, how, are our, how are our social media interactions and, and posting, things like that, how do they weigh in on that, whether we're doing this for God or doing this for other people? Because you can absolutely make an argument that, that it's good for us to tell people because it helps spread the word. They have genuine conversations with people about God, and maybe people didn't even know that you were a Christian or serving, and they go, why do you do that? And you can have great conversations, and it can absolutely be a great thing to raise that awareness and have good conversations both with other Christians and encourage them in their service, but also with non-believers and explaining them why you do these things. But there's, there's that, that heart check of just like, what, what is the motivation for all of this? that every, every person just has to wrestle within their own heart and make sure that they're not slipping over that line. <clears throat> okay, we'll continue. So we have to consider, at least we have to, must consider our motives and recenter ourselves on Christ constantly. When Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this about fasting. He says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. He says, listen, if we are doing it just for attention, then you, that's the reward you get. You don't get to get double credit. You don't get to get credit, the credit you're seeking with other, other people and then also get credit with God. If that, that's your motivation, that's the reason you're doing it, you've got your reward. You're not also gonna get credit with God. We'll look next here at phylacteries and fringes. So the, the Pharisees wore several symbols of their faith. Um, the first were phylacteries. Phylacteries come out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, in one of the most uh, famous passages of the, of the Old Testament, where it says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So go back to verse 8. Jesus is talking here about, about remembering God and, and about you know, talking about him uh, and, and these words that, that, that Moses is writing when, um, when, you, you're, when you wake up and when you go to sleep and all through your day, and it should be a regular part of your life. And it says in, that, in verse 9, you shall put them on, on your door frames and like, they should be everywhere, that you should be able to see them everywhere. But this, this verse 8, 
where he says, you shall bind them as frontlets, uh, bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. We're, it's hard to say, like, was that, is, that being, is that being literal or metaphorical? Is he saying literally bind it on your hands and put it between your eyes? Or is it just saying like it should be at the front of your mind and it should be like at your fingertips? Well, the, the Pharisees, they thought it was literally bind them as a sign in your hand and between your eyes. And so they would put a box on their hand that had the scripture in it and they would tie it onto their hand. All, all, it's, a, it's kind of a wrap all on the arm. And they would tie a box with the scriptures on their heads and tie it on like a little headband. And, and, and that was how they, they interpreted this, this passage. They should literally do that, called those phylacteries. And what he's saying is they make their phylacteries broad, meaning those boxes got bigger and bigger. If you can imagine how comical, but like, that, I mean, that fits with fashion, right? You start with something and then it's just bigger, like big bows and big, you know, bell-bottom jeans and stuff. Like, you know, we've seen this. So, yeah, they just keep getting bigger, bigger and bigger boxes on their heads. So you just imagine just these Pharisees walking around with these huge boxes on their hands in front of you. They make their phylacteries broad to be seen by other people. Second one was, is definitely... Uh, literal, and that's the fringes, that comes out of Numbers chapter 15, 38 through 39. It says, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh to do them, not to follow after your own heart and with your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So God had commanded them to, to wear fringes on their garments and to have a blue cord in them on each corner and that when they saw that, they should remember the commands of God. That's a good tool to remember. These kind of physical reminders are, are a good tool for, for human beings to remember something. So he said they would, should wear fringes. So essentially they just started making those fringes really long really long, to really show off, like, look, and you can imagine probably the blue cord got thicker and thicker, uh, just to, to really show off, like, look at my big old phylacteries, look at my long fringes, and it would, everyone could see and be impressed by how much they really cared about these things. But what they, they did is they turned these things that were meant to be a, a symbol of remembrance, they turned it into a decoration. And and we can do this too, right? We can do this too with our own symbols that, that were meant to remind us of God, whether you wear a cross necklace or um, you wear a bracelet of some kind that has some kind of special meaning to you, whatever it is, we can use these physical symbols, but do they become just mere decoration or are they actually for us, between us and God, to remember these things? He said that the Pharisees, they, they liked to be honored for their piety. They liked to have the best seat in the house because they were considered so pious and so righteous and so close to God. When they would go over to people's houses, people would give them the best seat in the house. They would say, oh, you, you come sit at the head of the table. Hey, here, sit in my recliner. You know, that kind of thing. Like they, they would give them the best treatment wherever they went. They, they had all the best treatment. People would greet them in the streets and they really enjoyed the privileges their religiosity brought them, but they neglected the service that they were called to. 
They just took all of the honor, but they didn't ever serve the way that they were called to serve. Jesus tells them that, that they shouldn't, shouldn't be called rabbi. So he says that the, the, so the Pharisees were called rabbi, and rabbi just means teacher. Jesus is called rabbi several times throughout Scripture. And what Jesus, it's important that we note something here, because he's going to tell them three things that, there were, that the, the Pharisees were called that they shouldn't be called rabbi, father, and instructor, or teacher. And, and so, so all of those, those words, it's not, it's not that he's saying that no one should ever have that title, right? It's not, if, you're, if, you are, if your job is that you're a teacher and you're here today, I don't think you need to change, you know, go to school tomorrow and tell the kids, like, listen, don't call me teacher. Turns out Jesus doesn't want me to, I don't know what you should call me, but don't call me a teacher. That's not what he's saying here. You shouldn't go to your dad and say, listen, dad, sorry, I can't call you father anymore. That's not what he's saying. He's saying what position do they hold? What position do they represent? Recognizing that God is teacher, that God is their ultimate rabbi, ultimate father, ultimate instructor, that he holds the position above everyone else. He wants them to recognize specifically that they are all equals. They're all equals in the eyes of God, that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, you are brothers, you're brothers and sisters. He usually uses a, a gender neutral term, brethren. The Greek term can refer to brothers and sisters. He says, you're, you're brothers and sisters in Christ. No one of you should be seen as above the other. You shouldn't call each, any, each other father. You shouldn't give them that position. You are all equal in the eyes of God, all equal um, in the body of Christ. I don't know, I don't know how the, the Catholic Church gets rid of having religious leaders that are called father in, the, in, in relationship with this passage. I don't know. They must get to that passage and just go, well, let's skip that. Let's skip that. It just straight up says, do not be called father in this context. He says the greatest among Jesus' followers is the one who serves, that they, they should be servants to one another. He's essentially inverting the order of things that the, as the Pharisees have set them up. The Pharisees set themselves up as uh, on a pedestal that they should be looked up to. They, should, they sought positions of honor and privilege. They ordered people around. They had servants who would tell them what to do. And Jesus said, no, this is not how it should be. You're gonna have leadership structure in the church. You're gonna have authority structures in, in, in the world and, and, and even in the church but it should not be in the heavy-handed way that the Pharisees did it. It should not be in the way of domineering like the Pharisees did it. His people should consider themselves brothers and sisters, and his leaders should consider themselves servants. We'll look next here at verses 14 and 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So the Pharisees made, made the kingdom of God like a limited access kind of system in, in their own communities. 
in their communities, the places they were from, they set the bar very high. They would shut people out. They would say, no, you're not admitted. You're unclean. Uh, you have to do this number of things in order to really be uh, in it. And so people would just give up. The burdens would be too heavy and people would give up. They would give up on God entirely. And instead of drawing people to him, the Pharisees would push people away and shut the doors behind them. But there should be no qualification for accessing God's grace. There should be no qualification for accessing God's grace. It's free. And so everyone should be able to do that. But instead, even as they were doing that, the Pharisees, they would go on their own form of mission trip. They would go on mission trips. They would travel across land and sea to make proselytes, to make disciples for themselves. They would go out and, and find people in a foreign country or in a foreign place, and they would teach them about God, and they would make them their disciple. And they would just bring back even just one person, and they would be super excited about it because it was like a trophy, it was like, look, I got this person to believe. They'd bring them back, and he says, you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourself. They wouldn't even practice trying to reach anybody in their own communities, but they would go across land and sea to go and try to reach one person somewhere else. Sometimes we can be like this. We don't consider living for God at all in our own communities where we have been placed, but we'll go on mission trips. We'll go on short-term mission trips and go teach people and try to convert them somewhere else and try to do good for them. And we're not going to judge them where they're at, but in our own communities, we're just shutting people out all the time. We're judging them based on their uh, social position or their politics or whatever, and we consider them shut out from the kingdom. They're not, not going to get in but we're willing to go on mission trips and go teach somebody else in another country that we don't understand. We ought to consider that he says that this makes them hypocrites. He tells them that they, these disciples they bring back, they make them worse than themselves. They make themselves twice as much a child of hell as themselves. And we have to consider what kind of example are we setting? What if you were the only example of a Christian that somebody had? that if you went and, and, and taught somebody the gospel, if you were the only example of what a Christian was, what would their faith practice look like? We'll look lastly here at verses 16 through 22. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So the Pharisees had made these strange oath laws. They had made these, these laws about the oaths that, that if you swore by the gold of the temple, it was something, but the temple itself, it didn't matter. They, they made all these rules that if you, if you swore by certain things, it counted, and by other things, it didn't. It, it almost sounds like a kid's game. It sounds like a kid thing, with the, the whole like, you know, yeah, I'll do it. Oh, I had my fingers crossed. You know, it sounds like that. But they made these, these, uh, these things, but Jesus just simplifies it. And in reality, he just calls them back to the law of Moses. If we look 
back in, in Numbers 31 through 2, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what Yahweh has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do all that proceeds out of his mouth. Or Deuteronomy chapter 23, If you make a vow to Yahweh your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for Yahweh your God will surely require it of you. But you will, and you will be guilty of sin. If you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to Yahweh your God what you have promised with your mouth. It's really super simple. It's just keep your promises. If you say you're going to do something, do it. If you make an oath or a vow or a pledge or whatever you, whatever you want to call it, pick your synonym, do it. That if you say you're going to do something, do it. If you say you won't do something, don't do it. If you make a promise, keep it. Don't try to get out on a technicality. James, uh, in his letter, repeats something similar. James chapter 5, verse 12, he actually really quotes Jesus here, where he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you may not fall under condemnation. We have to be people of our word. We'll wrap up with this, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. Again, you can, someone can learn from you if you're preaching correctly but not living it. They can still learn and everything, but, but we know that's not the best way. The best is when your, your practice matches your preaching. That's so often when people uh, judge you by, like whether you're, your deeds match your words, whether you're someone of integrity in that way. So practice what you preach to other people. Number two, consider the example that you are setting. Again, consider what if you were the only, the only example of a Christian that someone had? Because somebody probably thinks of you as the only Christian in their life. Pro probably so there's somebody who goes like, oh yeah, I know Christians. Well, I know, I know, I know Richie. Right? Someone, somebody thinks that. Somebody in your life probably considers you or you and your family the only examples of what a Christian are. And number three, keep your promises. Do what you say you're going to do. Be people of integrity. Be people that someone can rely on. All right. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and then uh, we'll take communion together and then we'll sing one final song. And then after that, we'll have a prayer team that will be available right up here. If you'd like prayer for anything, they'd love to pray for you. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and, and for the challenges that we can consider in these passages of, uh, of your critique of the Pharisees and their, <coughs> their false religiosity, their false righteousness, their misplaced zeal. I pray that we would not fall into those same traps, that we would do the things that, that we want to do for you, that we would do them out of a pure heart and out of a love for you, not to be seen by others or to get the approval of other people, but that we would be pleased by you. that you would be the one that we are looking to to satisfy all of our needs, that you would be the one whose approval we seek alone. Pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.